Hey, everybody, it's Carrie Champion, and this is The Brown Print, a podcast that offers solutions and guidance for the marginalized and those who feel left out. These discussions will act as a guide to mentor those in need of direction and also to inspire those who feel hopeless. We will move the needle forward and speak out on the issues by way of dialogue and telling stories of those who need to be heard. President Trump just tweeting out this. ESPN is paying a really big price for its politics and bad programming. People are dumping it in record numbers. Apologize for untruth. The president just tweeted that out this morning. He's referring to ESPN host Jamil Hill after she called him a white supremacist earlier this week on Twitter. Everybody, welcome to The Brown Print. I'm really excited about our next guest. Um, It is not fair that I know everything about her life and you do not. So I figured I'd have her on here to talk about all the amazing things that she has been able to accomplish and also the not so amazing things because she's not perfect. People often think she is, but I mean, she's okay. Um, She is (laughs) a contributor for The Atlantic. She has her own podcast. She has several podcasts. Jamel Hill's Unbothered, as well as uh, what is that one that you do with the wire help until yes. what was yeah. that called you, i know you really sound like an auntie right there it is called tell, tell way auntie. down in the hole it is a way. rewatch po- podcast for uh people who love the wire we rewatch every episode of the wire and then we talk about it yeah we're going to talk about that too because you already know i've never watched the wire <gasps> and i i need you to correct this so badly <laughs> you watch it get invested carrie get invested i think our friendship depends on it too wow okay <laughs> it's that serious Um, By way of background, everyone, I met Jamel Hill in October of 2012 when I first started working at ESPN. And the interesting thing about working at a place like that is that you walk into literally into what feels like a foreign space because I moved from L.A. to Connecticut and I didn't have any friends, not a single friend. I knew people high and by, but not a single friend. And so... um, and not in a bad way. I just was like, all right, I'll just take this loner road on my own, you know, get in and get out. Uh, the history behind Jamel and I is that we both were up for the same position, which was the host of First Take. And at the time, it was Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. Uh, and Jamel and I knew of one another because we both knew that we were both up for the job, <laughs> but we didn't know each other. We had a mutual friend, but did not know one another. Uh, and I ultimately got the job, uh, which turned out so great for her later on in life and so great for me. Everything happens for a reason. But what she did for me, uh, in this brown print podcast, and as we're discussing right now, was give me a blueprint, if you will, that I like to call brown print on how to be successful, how to be, how to be a, a girl's girl in whatever way that can happen, especially in a very tough world. When you are one of a few black people, they make you feel like only one can make it, and you refuse to let that narrative live. So I thank you for that, and I then we'll take everyone back to how this all began for you in terms of being the sports journalist that you are, the human that you are. When did you know, and you got to tell the story, I hope you tell the right one. When did you know? (laughs) As opposed to the wrong, untrue one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) When did you know that you wanted to be a sports journalist or that sports was a part of your life? Sports has always been a part of my life. It felt as natural to me as breathing. I don't remember a time of ever not loving sports. I don't remember having to be convinced to love sports. It was just something I always did. Uh, I was a neighborhood tomboy, so I loved to play sports. I loved to watch sports. Um, But I also was a voracious reader, and I love language, and I like to write. And so I just combined the two things that I love. And probably right around high school is when I figured out that I could be a sports writer. And it was uh, was one of those things that it's, I guess it, I wouldn't say it's like when little boys say they want to be a fireman or a police officer because they see those people. Right. Like in your neighborhood, at some point, you're going to see a fire truck or you're going to see a police officer out in the street. No, any sports journalists <laughs> like I, I just came up with the idea because I read the newspapers Um you know, I'm I'm from a time, uh, boys and girls, where one had to read the newspaper <laughs> in order to follow your sports team. So it was my love of sports that got me into newspapers. And so I knew that there was people who people who wrote about these games and uh, were able to write columns and, and contextualize what happened in a game. And I was just thinking, like, oh, I, I think I want to do that. And so I, I started writing for my high school newspaper. 
Um, I'm pretty sure my early work was pretty terrible. Um, and as, as much as that's how it, that's how it is. And the great thing about my high school newspaper, I grew up in Detroit is in the great thing about the way high school newspapers were done at the time is that they were produced as an insert in the Detroit free press, which was the professional paper in Detroit. So in order to put together your high school newspaper, you had to go to the free press to do that. And you had to go down there once a month. So I saw my first professional newsroom when I was about 15 years old. And when I walked into the newsroom, I was like, this is where I want to be. Like people are yelling. There's energy. They're doing something important. Chaos. Like it was like a newsroom, as you imagine and see often in the movies and in television. So uh, I just kind of like, hey, I want to do that. And it just so happened the Free Press had an apprenticeship program and you as somebody who started a foundation, this is the the beauty of when you do things like this is that you never know what seed you're going to plant. You never know whose life you're going to change. And that program changed my life. I did. I applied for the program. I had to write an essay, show some samples of what I'd written in my high school newspaper. And they uh, named me one of 12 apprentices. And what you do is you you came down there 20 hours a week uh, in the summer And you learned not only how newspapers work, but you learned about journalism and how to write a story. They assigned you two mentors who I'm still friends with to this day. And um, yeah, I was kind of on my way. And that same summer that I started this internship program, there was another event that also got me off to, I think, a fantastic start in my career. The National Association of Black Journalists Convention was in Detroit that summer. And mm-hmm. what the program head of the apprenticeship program, she took all of us apprentices down to NABJ, made us register for NABJ or that I think they pay for registration. We had to become members of NABJ. And so I became a student member and I got involved with NABJ at 15 years old. Um, uh, this was in 1992. So I think I might have been 16 already. That's, so you have to. You have to take a moment and just just acknowledge that there are so many times that we go to these conventions, uh, especially in ABJ, and you know, and I even have to say for myself, my first one was when I was well into my career. I was like maybe in my like late twenties, and I thought to myself, you know, wow, this is exciting for you to get a jump on at fifteen years old, sixteen years old, speaks to who you are at this moment because this has always been what you've wanted to do. It's been your passion. I wanted you to talk about. And we'll jump, we'll jump around a little bit here, but you have to understand the people who will be listening to this don't necessarily have access to apprenticeships and internships, right? There are some people who feel as if there are, you know, other outlets that they should try, but I, I always am inspired by the story of how you were reading a newspaper while your mom was, you know, cleaning, while she was at work. Yeah, she was. uh, So like you said, access is a huge issue for a lot of uh, young women and a lot of women of color, black people. Um, There's a lot of things that we don't even know that we can do that sometimes are right in front of our faces. And um, we didn't have a newspaper subscription, uh, but my mother cleaned the house of this old white man named Mr. Miller who had one. And I, uh, I started reading this. My mother would bring me along with her when she had to clean his house and, you know, to keep me quiet and entertained, I read a newspaper and, he was also a really big sports fan. And so he and I developed a relationship and I would sit there with him with this 85 year old white man and watch <laughs> Detroit Tigers games. It's so true. And, you know, I knew of the rosters. I knew everything because baseball was actually my first love. That was this, the first sport that I just like really shocking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because the Tigers were very successful when I was around this age where I was kind of starting to come into my own as a sports fan. I mean, they were in the World Series when I was nine. Um, they were successful for a, a huge chunk of the 80s. Uh, I try to pretend like most of the 90s didn't happen as far as <laughs> they're concerned because they were bad. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was those were kind of the early sparks that started. But, you know, you brought up something important about access. And that's what I mean about things that are right in front of your face. You know, I, I went to public uh, school. I, I mean, I I went to you know Mumford High School. Some of you, if you're old enough to know, is where uh, like Eddie Murphy and Beverly Hills Cop. He wore a T-shirt from my high school. People thought it was a fictional high school. Oh, yeah. Mumford High School exists. Yeah, Mumford High School Phys Ed. That was a T-shirt. Yeah. Because that's your Jerry, claim to fame, huh? That's our claim to fame. We have a uh-huh. we have a couple. Um, the Clark sisters, Eddie Murphy wearing <laughs> a T-shirt. Uh, Jerry Bruckenheimer. He went to Mumford. Oh. 
Um, okay. This is pre-white flight. <laughs> so anytime Girl, you know some... Yeah, okay. We got a couple folk. Uh, okay. Yeah, Go ahead, Mumford. Go ahead, yeah, Mumford. Steven Ross, the Miami Dolphins owner, went to Mumford. So... You know what? Enough with your bragging. All right. I'll stop. I'll stop humble yeah. bragging. Look, I, yeah. ask me what's happened since. That's a whole other story. But <laughs> Well, they <laughs> but, named the gymnasium after you. I know that. Uh, the auditorium. Oh, so the, the auditorium. Okay. The auditorium is named after me. And I have mm-hmm. um, a brick in the Mumford like a walk of fame. So that was Mumford's great, very own. That's Jamaica. right. Uh, the, the, but this is, but understand, like I was at one of those underperforming high schools in Detroit. I mean, yep. we were lean on me. We had a little bit of Joe Clark. I mean, our principal <laughs> was trying to do, we was East side high. <laughs> like that was us. So it wasn't. You don't take as, care of your responsibilities. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> we, we, we had a lot of those. Definitely. You smoke crack, don't you? Um, yeah. So this was, this was not, like I went to some high performing school and sure. some great neighborhood. It was right there in the inner city. It was drugs around. It was crime around. But, you know, this apprenticeship program was something that the free press had developed to try to expose um, black kids in Detroit to newspaper careers. And I just took advantage of that program. And uh, that is what sent me on my way. And it was just mm-hmm. a, a divine intersection between starting that program and then getting involved in NABJ. I I love the story of access and and finding your own. Um, I think you and I agree that there's no excuse for not being able to work hard. You know, somebody could never, ever outwork you. They may, they may be able to say they have other things on you, but if you're determined and you're passionate about what you want to do, no one's going to outwork you. I know no one's going to outwork me. I'm not going to sit there and let somebody just figure it out. And I, and I don't try myself. I, I think this is interesting because you are on your way in high school, you get to college, you're writing, you're doing all these different things. When did you know, outside of the obvious time, but just listen to this question, when did you know that you were a black woman working in a white man's world? Well, uh, I think I definitely got that wake up call in college uh, because I went to Michigan State. I went from going from uh, a chocolate city, which Detroit is. I mean, we're talking 85 percent of the residents are from are black. And I I had an all black high school, all black middle school. So that was my enclave. And to go to Michigan State, which has 40,000 students, uh, it was the largest um, it's the largest campus in Michigan, one of the largest in uh, in the United States. And so to go from that to like 40,000 plus students and a small percentage of them being black, there was a cultural reckoning that was happening. Like, oh, there's a lot of white people out here that <laughs> I hadn't seen white people before. I'd gone to a journalism <laughs> camp and, and been exposed to white people. I mean, I saw them in like the bank. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. They were, they were around. These aliens known as non-blacks. <laughs> That's like, who are these people? But then you're, you're exposed to a much larger community of white folks and you begin to immediately see not just racial differences, but racial hierarchies. I mean, I didn't get called a nigger till I got to Michigan State. I mean, and, and not in the colloquial way, if you will. Yeah. So, not right. The and the hard uh, Yeah, I got the hard ER. <laughs> I got the hard ER when I got to Michigan State. And it was because of something that I written uh, that I'd written um, for the campus newspaper, uh, because, you know, people ask me how you adjust to hatred on social media. I was like, I've been literally getting hate mail since I was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's unbothered. Yeah. I mean, it's (laughs) unfortunate and it was a bit of a a wake up call when I got it, but that's when I understood that not only, not only were there, uh, there's a a racial dynamic I have to deal with in this male dominated profession, but just period, just, just black success in general is hard to attain because whether you're a man or a woman, you are, you will be constantly reminded of your blackness. And and not always in positive ways, largely not in positive ways. And so I've been being called an affirmative action hire for over 30 years. Like, OK, you know, so it was um, while it was something that thankfully did not deplete my self-esteem, it was just still very mentally taxing to always have to deal with it. And uh, these were things that, you know, obviously my white counterparts didn't have to deal with and. Um, and I didn't even understand. It wasn't until later on that I really understand kind of the, the burden and the, the mental dexterity it requires to separate the fact that 
people are calling you um, racial slurs, telling me to go back to Africa, telling me to go write for Cosmo, telling me to get back in the kitchen, calling me Aunt Jemima. Like, I don't been through all of that. Like, it, it's it's very rare it's a slur or insult I ain't heard yet at this point. So to start, yeah, you can, I'm sure you could probably think of something. And I was like, I've been called the C word, all of that. <laughs> You, Jamel, I think to your credit, uh, handle negative press, negative um, vibes in life easily. That has always, for me, been one of uh, one of your best qualities, um, which why every, it's a thing that everyone thinks like they're your best friend, no matter who they are, no matter what color they are. When they meet you, they're like, we're really close. And I'm like, she's so like, she's so easy. Yeah, Everyone doesn't understand that. If they just followed you on Twitter uh, and, and read some of the things you may have said, or they think she's this, she's that. I love the I love the vitriol that I get just being associated with you. Right. You just, I know. And I hate you, you all. Little did you know that this would be the price of being my friend. <laughs> I was just like, I didn't do nothing i just came here um i will say this though uh we learn a lot over the years like i think i think of some of my biggest lessons in my career uh when i was fired that was the best humbling experience i ever had um and i look over the things that you've been able to do now as a writer you do not mix your words many times i have you ever uh written something that you had to later say i apologize or i regretted saying that or i was misunderstood have i <laughs> Uh, yes, I have. I was pretending um, like I didn't know. Yeah, I know. You did a good job. You did a good job. That's why they pay you the big bucks. Yeah. Oh, so, yes. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a progression. You're going to you're going to make mistakes and, and things that you write because uh, God knows, please, for the love of God, nobody dig up some of my college columns because I don't know. They, they might read a little differently now. I'm like, eh, OK, but um, yeah, I mean, in. I mean, probably the biggest incident that I had was when I got suspended in 2008 while at ESPN um, for making a Hitler reference in a column. And as I unfortunately have to explain, it was not a pro Hitler reference. It was just a joke um, that I made. And although I think about it, you know, the joke that was actually way worse that never gets talked about. I made an R. Kelly joke in there. Never gets talked about. It's like way worse. Well, you know why? Uh, I, I do know why. But OK. And then I also let you know that, right, (laughs) we can just skip right over that one. That's a whole podcast in itself of why that one got passed (laughs) over. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I made a a very insensitive, you know, remark and a joke about comparing Celtics fans to Nazis. And uh, and it was it was terrible. I mean, not only was it like not funny, I mean, it just was a really just dumb thing to write. So I had to apologize. And I got. You know, I got raked over the coals for that for a while. Uh, even now, if you Google my name and Hitler, it's going to pop right up. And that's one association. That's one word association you don't want. And it took me a long time, I felt like, to regain my credibility back. And even though, yeah, there were a chorus of people like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, yeah, it was that bad because I, I should know better. But it was a great lesson for me to learn because being at a national platform about at like ESPN, you go through a couple different learning curves. One, you just have to get adjusted to the place, to the politics, to the hierarchies, and just kind of find your footing. Second adjustment you have to make is that whether you want to or not, you're now a celebrity figure. And I was not used to that at all. I had come from the old school of journalism where you are not the story that, you know, you are not a part of, um, you know, like your persona doesn't really matter and at ESPN, it could not be more of the opposite, where they're purposely trying to build personas. So it wasn't just mm-hmm. ESPN columnist makes Hitler reference. It was Jamel Hill makes Hitler reference. So there- I have a question, though. When you wrote that or when you were writing that, I do know that you have editors. No one I do. above you thought that was wrong or no. Where was I, the joke? Where was the <laughs> joke to you? If you th- in your mind, like you go back, you're like, damn, I, I wish I like I, I feel that way about guys I used to date. I'm like, oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> so in your mind, where was the joke and how come it didn't, how come you ended up, you know, you weren't, the, you shouldn't have been the last line of defense, in my opinion. Somebody should have came in there and said, you know what, this ain't funny. Right. Um, I wasn't the last line of defense. It, I did have an editor and uh, who looked at it and, you know, I, this, I can't post my own story. So obviously somebody posted it and it goes through um, not just an editor, but I feel like it goes through a copy editor, too. And the story had just been up for a few hours and it just, you know, it it was it was just like a a total avalanche of 
you know, it, it just it went viral. It, it was kind of crazy. But even knowing that, even though they're at every shop at the Atlantic, at ESPN.com, their local paper, there is a chain of command and a chain of evidence, so to speak, as to how these works. Like, you know, editors usually overlook your, uh, usually look at your stories. And sure, there was a failure in that process. But ultimately, it's still on me because they're my words. And so right. I wasn't going to pass that off on somebody else. And I think um, I'm pretty sure that the the editor who sent it through was suspended as well. But mm. in a way that doesn't really matter because it was my you name on the it. story. Yep. I wrote it. I'm going to take yeah. I'm going to be the one to yeah. take the heat. Nobody's going to be asking who, who was the editor. They're going right. to ask me, why did you write it? Yeah, I was just curious because it'd be, mm-hmm. it's almost if I've noticed in this world, the outrage that we have. Yes, that was I mean, that's this, this is an outlier in terms of circumstances. But often in, in this career that we have, when we, quote unquote, become known and have a name, there are so many things that um, people allow us to get away with that sometimes we just get comfortable. And in our sense of humor is 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 not everyone's taste. So things are lost in translation. And sometimes they identify you. And we've all had that moment in our career where we've been identified. For you to say it took you a long time to get past that, that's very interesting to me because the the um, the high was really high. I met you on the high. Now, this was the low, but I've met you on the high. So for you to be able to rebuild and rebuild and rebuild is a beautiful thing. What was it? Because I know when you went through it, it had to be difficult. What was it that allowed you to feel as if you had to just put your head down to your job and rebuild and get that and, and regain the respect of many writers in the community and your peers for that matter? Well, it, it taught me a lot about equity as in real equity in this profession. And, you know, you want to be the kind of person that even if you make a mistake, people kind of root for. And the good thing is that I had a lot of great relationships in this business, a lot of really good writers who I knew and were friends with um, and had, you know, credibility in the in the journalism community. They all reached out and they were like, look, it happens. We've all messed up. You just happened to unfortunately mess up while at a place like ESPN. So this is just going to sting in the moment, but uh, you'll get over it. And uh, probably one of my favorite emails is from Dan Wetzel, who is a columnist for Yahoo Sports. And I think the the body of the email was the next time the dictator you're looking for is Stalin. No one ever complains <laughs> about Joseph Stalin. And it was such a great email and I, I loved him for uh... it. Uh, but that that's, that taught me how the other lesson I learned is that, you know, generally being a good person will get you so much further because you're going to stumble. And when you do, you're going to need a level of support. And even my relationships at ESPN, people knew that I wasn't the type of person um, that, you know, wanted to embarrass the company and certainly not wanted to embarrass myself. So, you know, me and my editors, we were able to, to work through it. It's not like they stopped giving me assignments or anything like that. And I had built enough equity and enough relationships so that my landing was a little bit softer. But for a while, yeah, I mean, I was uh, I was worried that people would be like, oh, that's the one to make the Hitler joke. And especially because mm-hmm. there's no context around that. Like, you don't yeah. know what Hitler joke I make. You're just like her yeah. and Hitler. And that's all you hear. Yeah. And so I had to wear that for a while. And even when it came to because my television uh, career was just kind of really starting. And yeah, they didn't put me on air for a little bit. They had they had to wait till it died down. And um, that's the worst. It's the yeah, worst. I mean, you feel like you're in the penalty box a little bit for sure. No, but it's just the worst because we all have had our run through, right? We all been put through the ringer, and when it happens on such a large platform, you're just like you don't want to. I hate, and I'm over it now because when we when you start trending, you're like, oh shit, here I go. What what? I just well, I literally turn off my was, phone. This was pre I pre Twitter, but my whole point this is general. Pre-Twitter. It's just the yeah. worst. Like if yeah. it would have been Twitter, it would have been even more disastrous. Oh probably. my god! I mean, if it had been Twitter, I mean, I, I probably would have got fired. Like oh, for if, sure. social, if social media would have been at the point that it is now, I don't know if I would have survived, particularly since I had only been at ESPN two years when that happened. Oh, so I'm wow. still on that first contract. But Yeah. And again, back to the equity, people knew you didn't mean anything because you do have a good spirit. And I say that knowing you. It's speaking of Twitter, though, here's my, my hard, hard, hard transitional turn. Let's go to Twitter and what happened and how it ultimately got you removed off the six. <laughs> I chose to leave, Carrie. Don't be telling. 
<laughs> you know, that's so no, funny. I'm kidding. She wanted to go, guys. That's a true story. But I, I, but the thing was, is that Twitter at the time was, it still is your way of making your opinion known. People follow you. You have over a million followers. You, you are very smart and thoughtful, and you share opinions that are your own. And it's so unfortunate because you have to separate. Now you have to. It's hard to like a place like ESPN. Is you could be like, these are my comments. These aren't ESPN's beliefs. These are my comments. But you're not allowed to do that at, at a place mm-hmm. like that. And in the world that we live in, you, you always are attached to someone. Yeah, I mean, that 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 is kind of, um, that's sort of what you sign up for when mm-hmm. you work for a place like ESPN. And for much of my journalism career, that was really the case. I mean, newspapers were no different. Yeah, most every newspaper I worked at, you could not have political signs in your yard. Even though I'm a sports mm-hmm. reporter, I don't cover politics. No wow, political signs that. in your yard, no political bumper stickers, none of that that would indicate to people whether you might be right leaning or left leaning or what your true opinions about things were. Yeah. So it was that was not necessarily new um, once I got to, to ESPN, but things became even more complicated with the explosion of, of social media is that even though I didn't have ESPN and my Twitter handle or any social media handle, I never yeah. have that. Yeah. People do not make the distinction between who I am on the six o'clock sports center and who I might be if I'm on Twitter getting these jokes off. Like they're, they're yeah. the same person as far as they're concerned. Cause right. even now it's so many people who have said to me that, you know, just trying to take a shot at me, they were like, Oh, that's why you got fired for what you said about Donald You're like, uh, Trump on, no, I didn't. on air. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I, I didn't yeah. say it at six yeah. o'clock. Like, yeah. dude, I said <laughs> yeah. it on Twitter, like what, whatever. But that's how blended and blurred that word is. I want to make sure that I'm clear because I joke with you and this is our rapport. You did not get fired. I want to make sure we are clear as we talk about (laughs) this brown print. She did not, guys. Um, The day that she posted that was no big deal. What happens is, is that when you work for a company that's so afraid of making waves, when people say anything, they respond or they issue statements. And it wasn't even a big deal. It went under the radar. You basically said the water is wet. You know, the sky is blue. The tweet was what exactly about Donald Trump? Um, the tweet was I called him a white supremacist and the most ignorant, offensive president of our lifetime. Still a fact. On par. Um, so, On par. Uh-huh. Yeah. On par. So, um, so I did that and it, it was really like a, a slow boil. Right. Because that was something that was in my replies. That was not like I added Donald Trump like, yo, yeah. I got this smoke for you. I remember. No, it was in the replies. And I'm not sure whose attention it came to. But there was a couple people who I noticed um, that are in our profession who retweeted it Uh, because ESPN, it was a perfect storm. ESPN was also caught up in this narrative that they were too liberal Uh and that MS MS ESPN or something. Yeah, and all that and woke center and all that (laughs) nonsense and all that. So they were they were caught up in that. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people who had found that their platforms were able to increase because. They came after people like me, came after our show, came after the six o'clock sports center, came after people like you, because what's the lowest hanging fruit, but and, and criticizing black people like very low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so, yeah, that's how the tweet started to pick up. And uh, I knew it was probably. More than just something that, you know, wasn't going to go away as quickly when Fox News reached out to me and asked yeah. if I would be on. Dun, 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 dun. With one of those particular people who tried to make this his defining yeah. moment in his career. And, and he so, turned out to be such a damn idiot and sitting somewhere in his basement right now. But <laughs> And I wish. <laughs> but it, at any rate, <laughs> that's what I want to um, say. I know. Uh, so it, it it turned out to be one of those and it just galvanized and, and gained steam. And um, next thing I know, it's it's like all hell broke loose in the span of maybe 24 hours. You know, I remember that moment on the outside looking in and thinking, okay. And then here's the, here's the rub of being a black woman on this brown print as I talk to you. As a woman, one, it was easy for him to come after you just as a woman because he being the president um, has a history of just being very disrespectful to women in general and talking over them and dismissing them and they don't matter. But at the time, the divisiveness in the country, which is still is the case, was so was right, so fever pitch. It was, you know, right at that point where it was more in style and more popular to say that 
that you don't agree with all of these marginalized people who think that they deserve something in this country, you know, that go back to Africa type of stance. So, so it was a perfect storm, like you talked about, but on the outside looking in, no one with any common sense thought that you were saying anything crazy. We all were like, wait, what do you mean? And I remember thinking the most disgusting thing about all of this was that you were left out by yourself without protection. No one from the company stood up for you. No one from the outside world really took care of you. No women's groups really weren't in a very vocal way supporting you. You had a couple of your homies tweeting for you and having your back. And well, you we had Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> I was one of the homies. Colin yeah. Kaepernick had your back, but he was always he was already you know ostracized at that point, blackballed at that point. But my point being is that while you might have some celebrities saying we wish you, we like you, we support you here and there, there were no real powerhouse groups, especially the groups that allegedly defend women or groups that defend journalists were protecting you, including ESPN. And and this is something that I mean I'm sure we can share. Um, because after you said it, everyone was like, there's no, like, people call him racist every day, white supremacist yeah, every day. Like, it's like, that was not even a, a But thing you were one of the first to say it. And, and, and you had no protection and you were left out there. And I know that if I'm speaking too much, we can take this part out. But I know that John Skipper told you that's what he regretted, not protecting you. He did. Um, and, um, you know, I will say of all of it, well, one, I guess, of course, slight clarification. NABJ did put out a statement on my behalf. They did and, do. And yeah, they, they did. did. I'm do sorry. That. I apologize. Yes. Yeah, uh, NABJ did. And, and, you know, that didn't surprise me given my long history and relationship there. And, and there are a lot of people within the organization who reached out. But it did, honestly, it, it did hurt that ESPN, when he, when the president said that about me, when he said that I was a reading reason for low ratings, uh, and even with Sarah Huckabee Sanders said what I did was a fireable offense. It hurt that ESPN just kind of took it. And there again, this part of this is the way I grew up in this business. And one of the things that I had seen throughout my career, because journalists were agitators, we're going to get into trouble at some point. It just, it, it's just it's just what happens. Right. Most of the cases that I had seen around the business is you may not have been completely right or whatever but you the 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 code is you protect your journalists that's the code that's it because that's it. you know we are a part of a, a a free press and a democracy and you can't lose that if you expect to have a real democracy and a government that's got to be held accountable so right or wrong or indifferent that that level and expectation of protection is supposed to be there Sure. I'm okay with facing some discipline internally from ESPN for what I did. Did I violate the social media policy? Yeah, I violated it. So we can handle that. What is unacceptable, they they can't let me be drugged by Donald Trump and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. That's unacceptable. They did it. And I, we don't like this woman, but they did the same thing for old girl at the other network who was drugged by him consistently. Nobody defended her. Correct. I mean, it's just, is it a woman thing? Like, I don't get it. I think that there is, there are so many entities and people, understandably so, because it is a different kind of attention. The, the, the megaphone of the white house and the president is something different. That is hits much differently. And that's why every time that he chooses to go after private citizens or even public figures, it is, he knows what he's doing. They know what mm -hmm. they're doing. Like they're literally sicking attack dogs on you from every single possible mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be hell on you for a while. And that's why you need, especially when it comes to your employees, you need them to stand up. Like the NFL, you know, cowered to him in a thousand different ways. But when he crossed the line and called them SOBs, that's when they're like, all right, man, enough's enough. Enough's enough. Enough's yeah. enough. That is what I expected from ESPN. And that never happened. And a lot of it was because they were so concerned with people who, frankly, were trying to drive an agenda against them that they had to understand those people are driving that agenda because they, A, probably want to be at ESPN and B, it is elevating their platform. You know, it's like they trying to they trying to have a hot uh, a hot 16 on your hot your hit song. All right. Like understand, yeah. like, understand what's happening here. And you can't let people cause you to 
drive a wedge between you and somebody who at that point had been working there over 10 years mm-hmm. then had a good relationship with everybody that that just can't happen. And so I was disappointed, especially given the fact that me and John Skipper, the former ESPN president, that I considered us to be friends. We mm-hmm. had a really good relationship and he, you know, admitted to me, which was which I I accepted his apology and I don't have any hard feelings against him because of it that he admitted that that's the one thing he wish he wishes that he would have, he would have changed. And so, um, you know, I mean, I thought I, I had at least earned that much at that point in my career with them. Several years removed. And by the way, you did. um, And I'd like to add this note. This is again, a learning lesson. I watching from afar, I learned not even far watching up close. I learned so much how you handled it with, you know, relative ease, but that's oftentimes the case with women. We we make it seem as if it's okay, but all because, you know, there's just trauma, 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 and you have to, you're just trying to stay afloat. There's so much going on. And and unfortunately, I often be, people will say, well, what's the lesson in that? And uh, and there's so many different lessons. Some things you just can't control. Some stuff is just out of your control, right? That's corporate America. That was out of your control. ESPN's response, right? That's out of your control. But there were those people who were like, well, she still kept tweeting. And that's why she finally got suspended for what she said about the Cowboys. About the NFL and, Cowboys yeah, yeah, she she didn't <laughs> learn her lesson. And she still kept tweeting. And, that I, and, I, and I believe that you kept tweeting because you were like, you're not going to silence my opinion on something that, in retrospect, had nothing to do with ESPN, but it did have something to do with their dollars. And so therefore, <laughs> the lesson here is don't be fucking with the money. You know what I mean? That's how the they make money. You, you can't you can't mess with the money. <laughs> You're gonna learn the hard way. I mean, that's anywhere, that's any business, but you are on the right side of history. Yeah. I mean, again, you know when you work for corporate America, what you sign up for. And that's why I never I never fretted about losing my job had I had they fired me after I got suspended um I wasn't that concerned about that because I felt like if that was the case it was it was kind of worth it so um because there are there's there's only a few points in your career you're going to get to draw a line in the sand and this is why I talk to younger people um younger black people especially younger black women uh even more specifically that you got to know who you are when you come through the door. This is why, because that day is going to come when they're going to test you. They're going to try you in a major way. And when that happens, you got to know what you're about and what you're willing to lose. And, you know, the the president tried me, the White House tried me, ESPN tried me. And I was just like, you know, considering that I'm so far ahead of the game, having come from you know, being on food stamps, my mother's a recovering drug addict. My dad is a recovering drug addict. My mo- my grandmother was a functional alcoholic. Coming from that, I'm so far ahead and so blessed. Like, if I got to take this quote unquote L, I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. I'd have dealt with a whole lot worse than the president mouthing off about me. You yeah. know, I know who I am. Donald Trump doesn't define who I am. Uh, his rabid little fans and cult followers, they don't define who I am. So... Because I had such a strong sense of that, I was able to weather a lot of things and and really kind of always keep it in in perspective. I mean, it was definitely some moments of deep introspection and reflection of wondering, like, all right, if I get fired, you know, whose couch am I going to be sleeping on? Carrie's cool. (laughs) (laughs) Me and Coco snuggle. Yep, You and Coco snuggling (laughs) up. Okay, so do you have, when you say deep introspection and reflection, I know know the answer, but I got to ask, would you change anything? One thing, maybe not so much the tweet, but maybe less of tweet or more of a demand or require protection. Would you have done anything differently um, uh, in that particular instance? Um... It's hard to say because it's hard to say I would have, because if I don't do that, I'm not here right now talking to you. That's right. Um, And at this place in my life, there are what I regret. And I mean, I I hate to use the word regret because I don't really believe in regrets uh, because everything is a lesson. Everything does get you to a different station in life. However, the part that will never sit right with me is you can't control the collateral damage. And I felt like when we started the six, uh, Mike and I, uh, Michael Smith and I, you know, we came in there with a vision and a plan 
and with the best intentions to make that the best show on ESPN. We weren't able to fulfill that. And I thought he was collateral damage in all of this. Of anybody who I wished I could have changed things for and made it different for, it's Mike. Because he wasn't able to get control of where his career and path were going as a result of me. You know, that's the thing about when you go into these TV partnerships. This is a warning sign for you, by the way, (laughs) is that, you know, when they when you are seen as a unit, when it's two of y'all, it's it is like a work marriage. Yeah, because I remember Mike being like, I didn't tweet nothing. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Don't matter. It don't matter. Yes, it don't matter. (laughs) He going down on the Titanic with me. You know, it's like, uh. And By the way, that speaks to who you are. I just want I like I have to slow you down when you when you brush over things like that. The one thing that you wish you could change was the collateral damage. And 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 we're in a business of very selfish people. But you've always which is why you have such equity um, in terms of your peers. You are always worried about somebody else or trying to amplify someone else's voice or trying to make someone else better. Um, you know, the circumstances happened as they did. And Mike there's a learning lesson for everybody involved. You know, everybody needs, if you're listening to this, everybody needs a backup plan. You always have to have something else that you can do if all the shit just fails and blows up overnight. You can't, and this is not about anybody in particular, but that's the learning lesson that I saw from afar. I was like, either you pick yourself up and you move on. It was easier for you to do so because you had a name, you had made, everyone had known you for this and they wanted you to speak everywhere. And then you became, your voice became more powerful. So you were able to transition. But the lesson is always be able to, it's almost like that movie. You ever watched that Robert De Niro movie uh, in Al Pacino? What was that one with heat? And then he was oh, like, yeah. you got to be yeah. ready to drop everything and run. Drop like everything. And, yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, 30, and just leave it all behind essentially you have to be able to mentally leave things behind if you ever want to be successful because things will happen it's like the great quarterbacks you got to have amnesia the best the the best athletes have amnesia i gotta go out there next play next down whatever it is and you've been able to do that so i think I, i think that people should understand that is a huge for you to acknowledge that you wish that things could have been done differently for mike yeah i mean and and not just um I mean, I knew I could move on, not just because of everything that happened and because of how my profile exploded, but also because, you know, there were a lot, there was a lot of drama, as you know, being my friend on the show, period, you know, um, and that was going to be it for me anyway. I wanted to. Because you can only take so much drama. You don't like drama. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, nah, man, that's like what was going on behind the scenes. It was like, that's too much foolishness for me. My nerves was bad, you know? So Uh Uh I I already was in the mindset of thinking that, okay, when this deal is up, here are the things that I wanted to do. I I thought that it would essentially be over. But the part that I didn't like is that not only did it put Mike on a different course that he hadn't really anticipated and very abruptly too, like this happened fast. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I tweeted that in October, 2017, I left the show in February of 2018. And mm-hmm. um, I, I didn't even make it a full year. You know, it was like mm-hmm. a, just a week shy of making it a full year on sports center. And, you know, the other part of it too, is just from a, a company standpoint, they didn't seem to really care about the position that they put him in when I got suspended and he did the show by himself. Uh, he didn't do it initially, maybe like the first couple of days. And then he did the show. Um, and they didn't think about him really much after I left, you know, they had no plan for him and he had been too, uh, too much of a dedicated employee. I mean, you know, Mike's personality, he so pours loyal. his entire soul into everything. And for right. them to do him like that, that like that, that was just, it was just wrong, you know, period. Yeah. And so as being one of my closest friends, of course, I didn't want to see that happen to him as a, as a result. I was able to leave Sports Center free and clear and conscious clear in terms of uh, what I put into it. But I know it wasn't so easy for him. Um, and so at any rate, it, it, all the things that happen, you know, that's the one that is always going to be tough for me. And, and, you know, we didn't get to end things our own way. We came into it our own way, didn't get to end that way. And so it denied us, I guess, a full circle moment as well. Well, that's okay because your careers aren't over. Everybody is still alive and you never know what could happen. I have to ask you, as you're at this point now, two years removed, um, how does it feel uh, to be where you are um, in terms of you're an entrepreneur? 
you are producing behind the scenes scripted television. Uh, you have a show coming out with yours truly. You seem to be able to put your hand in some of everything and really require the freedom, if not the autonomy, to do journalism the way in which you want. It is freeing. That's a, a great word to use. Um, it's freeing and it's challenging. It's exhilarating. It's all of those things. But the one thing that I always worry about with myself in particular, and it, it harkens back to what we were just talking about when all the stuff happened, you know, with Donald Trump and the fallout from leaving the six and thus leaving ESPN, is that I am the type of person who will be like, you make the most um, uh, nuanced and and sort of deep dive analogy that I can using the movie Soul Food <laughs> with um, Neil Long and Vanessa Williams. You go deep dive into the black cinema world here. Uh, <laughs> in the movie Soul Food, everybody know Big Mama had diabetes real bad. Big Mama had <laughs> diabetes so bad. I know Carrie's like, where is this going? I promise you. <laughs> it'll be worth it. In the poetry. Payoff. Here comes so, the poetry. Yeah. Big Mama has diabetes. They find out Big Mama is something ain't right with her because they're in the kitchen making a traditional Sunday dinner and her arm is above the stove and the stove is, is lit. It's fire coming out. And she has no idea her arm is burning because that's one of the things that happens when you have very serious diabetes is that you lose a sense of, of, of feeling around certain parts of your body. Usually it's in your feet. In her case, it was her forearm and it's burning. And, you know, the little uh, her grandson had to be like, hey, big mama, you're burning your arm. That is me. Uh, my arm might be on fire and I might not know it. And so the thing I worried about with myself during both that period and now, as great as this time is in my career, is I got to watch to make sure my arm ain't on fire mm. on the stove. I mean, that is. Uh, something I'm trying to get increasingly more cognizant of being very aware and protective of my mental energy um, mm -hmm. and understanding when I'm mentally exhausted and mm -hmm. what that feels like for me. Um, you know, cause one of the things I've really noticed is like, is anxiety is, is real. I mean, I I know people who experience it, but sometimes I have a very high level of it and I don't even, I, I only realize it by my sleeping patterns. Because I think you just asked me this. You're like, why are you up at 5 a.m.? That's why. I mean, I could yeah. go to sleep at 2 a.m. and be up at 5. Which yeah, because your is, mind won't shut off. Yeah. Yeah, my mind won't shut off. I was like, I, I got to make sure at this point, um, with everything I have going on, being able to be blessed enough to be able to do these different things, I got to make sure that I check in on me. Um, mm -hmm. And the people around me, you know, you, my husband, certainly, they try to do that. But... I guess I'm, you know, like all black women, you're so used to feeling as if you got to master it all. Even when you have support, you don't even know how to use it in the right way. You feel uncomfortable even asking for it. Correct. And sometimes you don't even know what it looks like. Yeah. Right. You may not know that I need this specifically because you don't know how to voice it because you're not used to being vulnerable in front of everybody. That's yeah. why I always tell people I'm so glad that I got married because it was forcing me into a vulnerable space where I have to admit certain things to another person for our marriage to work. Because otherwise <laughs> I would be otherwise left to my own devices. Girl, I don't know what this pandemic might have been like for me. Girl. <laughs> it's been crazy. It's been crazy. I, um, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And I appreciate you giving me so much time. I, I do have to ask uh, a couple of quick last questions. One, I hope that takeaway was huge for anybody listening. We have to, at the end of the day, as we climb this ladder and hold the door open for others to come through, we have to check in on ourselves. And I don't want you to be big mama and I don't want your arm to burn on the stove. <laughs> if you okay, see my, my skin getting crispy, Carrie, tell me. I'm like, big mama, you got the BDs. I don't want that. But um, what's, I? okay, so we talked about your two podcasts that you have off the top. You also have other endeavors going on. What's next for you, Jamal? Ooh, ciao. Um, <laughs> you know what? All <laughs> right. Now it's, it is a it's a lot going on. I have a a book um that uh I'm finishing right now. I'm in the editing phase, ready to finalize this uh, manuscript because it is the bane of my existence right now. Is that mm -hmm. so? I got that going on. As you mentioned, there's some scripted projects that we'll be able to announce 
very shortly. I have the show with you going on. I'm still writing. What's the name of the show you know, that we have? Uh, the name of the show that we have, ironically, is called Stick to Sports, where we oh. would do everything but that. Um, okay, cool. So that part's exciting. So yeah, I mean, I have a lot of really fun, exciting projects that I have coming up. It's just, uh, you know, I need to make sure that I'm not heading toward early burnout. <laughs> yeah, everything I, yeah I would say that for you. I, and that is always my worry for you at all times. Meanwhile, thank you for joining us on The Brown Print and showing so many of us, myself most importantly, as I love you to death, the way to do it or not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's just as important. That's just the bigger lesson too. Javel Hill, ladies and gentlemen. So at the end of The Brown Print, I like to give you guys a few takeaways. My takeaways, but you may have a different one. Missteps, mistakes in your career, they don't always end in failure. It may seem difficult in that moment, but think about it. It is just a moment. Success will follow if you stand by your convictions. Even if it seems like failure is enormous, it is not the end of your career. Fallouts with ESPN led Jamel to find her voice. And well, guess what? Another platform in sports reporting. Thank God for all of us, right? Number two, your past does not dictate your future. I say that to you, ladies, if you're listening, ladies, that it means bad boyfriends. Don't worry about it. Meanwhile, your past does not dictate your future. Remember where you come from, because that truly is your way to succeed. It's in your DNA. There's cellular memory that says you can do it. You can succeed. It's easier said than done. I know. Please do not remind me. But remember, anything is possible. And number three, your dreams can stay the same, but your destination might not be the same. I'll say that again. Number three, your dreams can stay the same, but your destination will always change. That is a gigaronty. You may not know it, but there could be something bigger and better waiting for you. Trust me. Working at ESPN seems like a dream job, a destination for so many. But when Jamel Hill walked away, she knew she had more. Even though ESPN seemed like the pinnacle of sports reporting, Jamel and all of her wisdom knew that there was a world waiting for her where she could create stories and relay her brown print. That's it for this week's episode of The Brown Print. Let's keep the conversation going online. You know I love to go online. Follow us on Instagram at The Brown Print Podcast and on Twitter at Brown Print Pod. Follow me, Carrie Champion, on IG and Twitter. You can find me at Carrie Champion. Don't at me if you got attitude. Well, okay. We'd love to hear your feedback. Or if there's a specific topic you want us to tackle or guests that you want us to have on, please reach out to the brownprintpod at gmail.com. Again, at brownprintpod at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. It helps spread the word. It is so important that we stay active and vocal. We'd greatly appreciate it if you showed us some love by leaving a five-star rating and a positive review. If you do not, I know you are a hater. Ha <laughs> ha. Kidding. Kind of. Not really. Meanwhile, uh, again, five-star rating and positive review. We need it. It really helps the podcast grow. The Brown Print is a Gallery Media Group original production.